talk to you about. This, this passage of scripture in Isaiah 30, God gave to me early in the morning about 10, 10, 11 days ago. Um, which is unusual because, you know, usually I don't ask for God to give me stuff until right before Sunday morning. And this, you know, skipped a Sunday, jumped right ahead to the next Sunday. And so this is abnormal. And I think God does that to show me that he is way ahead of the game. He's way ahead of the process. And so when we come to a passage like this, we look at it today and we think, have to think to ourselves, this is timely. This is timely information that he's imparting to us and entrusting to us. And so we need to see this as, as an eye-opening, prayerfully uh, birthed message that is directly intended for us today. Therefore, nobody is here by accident. We've all been drawn here. Uh, God did not select this passage by accident. There's a plan in this. And this is what he wants to convey to us. With that said, typically, a lot of pastors do this. I've done it for many years, maybe not consistently. But on this last Sunday of the, the calendar year, or the first Sunday of the new year, we like to do a message on the vision of the church, how we see God moving in the year to come. Some pastors will use it as a wrap-up for the previous year, but a lot of us like to shoot ahead. We like to look forward. This was an attempt, when I prayerfully asked for this, this was an attempt to, to look forward into the year. And, and I'll have to say that a lot of times when we put together a vision, we want it to be an, an all-time high note. We want it to just pump you up and fill you up with so much excitement and joy and celebration that you're looking forward to the next year and you're like ready to attack whatever comes your way. This one's going to seem a little negative. It's going to seem a little negative. I'm going to give you the little uh, injection at the end to hopefully put a, a little hope in your heart. But this is going to be a little bit negative. But this is the reason why this is important. God wants to make it very clear to us. He knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows our tendencies. He, he knows how we're wired. He knows what is probably going to happen if he just continues to let you do whatever you do. So this is to be a wake-up call for us. But, but this is God's way of saying, look, this is what I know you're going to probably do. I encourage you not to. So let's look into this passage a little bit. He begins by saying in, in chapter 30, Woe to the obstinate children. Isn't that a great way to start off a love letter? Yes, woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. Question comes up, who are the children that he's talking about? We know by context, he's talking about the children of Israel, his chosen people. But look at the differentiating uh, aspects of this passage to really narrow it down. This is who he's looking at. This is who he's focused upon. Those who carry out plans that are not God's. So in other words, these are people that know what God wants them to do with their lives, or they know that God is the source of their uh, earthly agenda, 
where he's the one that makes the heavenly assignments for all of us. But, but regardless of who we think God is and what his involvement is in our lives, we are a people who carry out plans that don't even coincide with his plans. We're people that don't prayerfully make up our minds of what we're going to do in the year ahead. We just do whatever we want, and if God would just bless it, then we'll both be happy, right? But this is what we do. We we basically, we tell God, no, God, this is what I'm going to do this year, and, and uh, I hope that it's okay with you that I do this, and I hope that you will see to it to bless me. So, woe to the obstinate children who make their own plans contrary to God's plans for your own edification because of our selfish desires, okay? So that's the first thing that he's trying to, the first plank he's trying to attach. Secondly, they form alliances, but not by my spirit, all right? So God wants us to form alliances, with other healthy believers so that I could say to, to Ryan, I could say, Ryan, I need you to, to hold me accountable for the things I do in the year to come. I want you to prayerfully support me, encourage me, correct me if I, if I do something wrong or say something wrong, rebuke me from time to time, but I want you to be my accountability partner. That is an alliance that God will bless every day. But that's not what he's talking about. Alliances that I don't encourage you to make. In other words, he knows, God knows that we are likely to make alliances with people who aren't godly. People who don't have our best interest at heart. People who don't really care what we stand for or the direction we're headed. Let me just give you an example. How about if you were dating somebody and you thought, yes, this person's not a Christian or is certainly not as healthy a Christian as I am, but it doesn't matter because they're attractive. So I'm going to marry them anyway, and God's going to bless that relationship. You just made an alliance with somebody that God did not approve of. This happens all the time, all the time. We have to be very careful who you make an alliance with. It could be you taking a new job with a bunch of pagans who are contrary to God and provide an environment that is very unhealthy for you spiritually, but yet you're going to sign a contract with them and go to work for them in an environment that God doesn't even want you in. Be careful of the alliances that you make. It could be the purchase of a really nice Mercedes-Benz SUV. That is going to, to, the payment's going to push you to the point of, of, of bankruptcy, but it's such a beautiful car. You want it so bad. And so you sign a contract, an alliance with the lender so that you can have that vehicle. And, and so he's saying first, be careful of the plans that you make that are contrary to mine. And secondly, forming alliances with those who I don't approve of. And thirdly, it says in verse two, those of you who go down to Egypt without consulting me. You go down to Egypt without consulting me. Now, this is going to need some explanation. Israel is at a point, and remember, they're a divided people. you got ten tribes to the north called Israel, the two tribes to the south called Judah. 
Judah was a little bit more conservative. They were a little bit more God-centered. But both of them had the same problem with idolatry. Idolatry was their downfall. They loved to worship idols. Themselves, money, houses, property, possessions, whatever it is. They loved idols. So God is already setting them up to discipline them. That's why he sent Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah to prophesy to them, this is what God's going to do to you to get your attention and to discipline you because of your idolatry and your rebellion against God's ways. This is a prophecy. Isaiah is saying, God's going to discipline you. But here's what I, here's what Israel's doing. Not only have they made idols and they have forsaken God to worship these other idols, they are resolving in their own hearts and minds of how they're going to get themselves through the period of discipline. Because the discipline's going to come in the form of an exile. They're going to be conquered from their enemies, their neighbors, and they're going to be taken out of their homeland and exiled into foreign countries for a long period of time. All right? And so they know that discipline's coming because it's been warned, but they're, they're disregarding it. You know, they've heard it, but they don't accept it. So this is what they're thinking. Things are getting rough here in the homeland. But because we're very intelligent people, we're going to figure out a plan to get us through this, this tragedy, this time frame. We're going to go down to Egypt where they have all kinds of money. They have green pastures. They have lots of area for us to build homes. We're going to let Egypt take care of us during this time of discipline. And they think that this is okay. And so what God is saying to them is, you go down to Egypt without consulting me. You make these plans to make an alliance with Egypt. Not for, not remembering in Deuteronomy, I think it's 8 verse 10, where God said, when he led the people of Israel out of Egypt, he said, don't ever return to Egypt. Don't ever return to Egypt. They've forgotten all that. This is a viable option for them as a nation. We're going to go back to Egypt and let them take care of us because they love us. We're good people. They're going to want us there to help work their fields and whatever else. And they've got all kinds of money. They've got infrastructure. They can accommodate us. So they said, who go down to Egypt without consulting, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection. They want Pharaoh to take care of them because God hasn't in their minds. They want Egypt to provide shade for their refuge. They want Egypt to foot the bill for their, basically for their sinful lifestyles. So this is what God has to say. Pharaoh's protection will put you to shame. Interesting statement coming from God. Why is that? They're already in some element of shame because of their disregard for God. They don't want to live for God. They don't want God's blessings on their families. They don't want to follow God's rules and restrictions and guidelines. And so they're just wanting to live life liberally, freely, without any restrictions. Don't ever tell me what to do. Don't judge me. Just let me live my life. It has nothing to do with you is what they would say. And so they're going to go down to Egypt... And it's going to increase their shame. Now, because here's the thing. 
they're already shameful because they're Christian people, but they're not acting like it. So there is an element of shame that comes upon any of us who call ourselves Christians and God's children, but still do stupid stuff. And you know my story. I am the ringleader of stupidity when it comes to violating God's laws and embarrassing him by your lifestyle. I've done it. And it is very shameful. And you have to come back to him and pray knowing that you've embarrassed him and you've given him a couple black eyes. But by his grace, he always takes us back. So not only is it shameful to live a life that's contrary to the God that we serve, but then to go to Egypt where the shame is going to be increased because we really aren't welcome there. Even though they will, they'll, they'll take us, they'll take our money, they'll take our bribes, they'll give us low-paying jobs, they really don't want us there. They're going to look down our, their noses at you. They don't want you there. And so your shame will be increased. And it said this, Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. So you think you're ashamed now? You think you're disgraced now? Wait till you go to Egypt and let them oppress you for a period of time. They will treat you like, like scum of the earth. But that's what you want. So he goes on to talk about the officials of Zoan, the envoys that are coming. The envoys basically are shipments of money, uh, bribery coming from other nations into Egypt. And the Israelis basically think, oh, well, that money is going to go to take care of us. Well, that money has nothing to do with them. That's Pharaoh's money. That's going to promote Pharaoh, not the people of Israel. But, but see, that's what we do. Whenever we start looking across the river, and, and that's why they have that phrase, the grass is greener on the other side of the creek. You know, or the other side of the fence, whichever you, wherever you grew up. That's the way this, this happens. We look across and we think, well, things better there. If we go there, it's going to be a whole lot better. I was there. I remember thinking to myself, if I just get divorced, things are going to get so much better. If I would just quit this job and go over here to work, things are going to be so much better. If I would just go to a different church, things will get so much better. How, how foolish we can be. So in verse 6, he, now he gets into the oracle. An oracle is, is typically in the Old Testament, it is the scriptures. But it also can be a prophet or a seer, someone who has divine and spiritual wisdom and can, can basically foreshadow what's going to happen in your life. And, and so in, in the non-Hebrew tradition, an oracle is a thing or a collection of intelligent people that will tell you what to do. So you have to be very careful where you go for an oracle, where you go from a word from God. You have to be very careful what you choose. Everybody thinks that they speak for God, but you need to have the truth spoken into you. So an oracle concerning the animals of the Negev, basically saying through a land of hardship and distress, the lions and lionesses of adders and darting snakes, the envoys carry the riches on donkeys' backs, but treasures on lump humps of camels, to that unprofitable nation, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab the do-nothing. Rahab was a, uh, a, a goddess-type entity that was the goddess of chaos, 
And so the, the impression is, is that Rahab in Egypt was constantly stirring up trouble and, and making people's lives miserable. But God's saying, this is Rahab, the do-nothing. In other words, what you're expecting in there is not going to happen when you get there. The things that you want to see are not going to come to fruition. But God says this in verse 8, I want you to write this on a tablet, write it in your journals, keep it on your head, keep it in your heads, so that when all of this comes to fruition, when God's judgment comes to pass, when all of this stuff flows together, God wants us to be very clear when we go back and reread the textbooks, we screwed up. All right, that's what he's wanting to convey. We screwed up. When you choose to go off on your own and reject God and do things your way for your glory and your benefit, write it down because God wants you to revisit it when he brings you back to that place of humility when you come crying back to him and say, God, I messed up. And then he can go back and show you where you messed up. He's done that with me a few times. It's not a fun time. But it's a, a fruitful time, I'll tell you that. So write it on your scribes, write it on your scrolls. For the days to come, it may be an everlasting witness. These are rebellious people, deceitful children, unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. That's his description of the people of Israel, which in the purpose of today's message, this is the message to us. We are unwilling to listen to God's counsel, unwilling to follow his instructions. We're rebellious, we're deceitful, and I'll tell you, the the word for rebellious in the Hebrew is actually stubborn. We are a stubborn people. Another translation could be stiff-necked. Stiff-necked people. It's not a compliment. Not a compliment. But this is how God views us because of our our stubbornness and our inability to keep ourselves humble so that he can do his best work in us and for us and through us. In verse 10, he gives a little bit more insight into this. You people say to the seers, the prophets, the pastors, the priests, the teachers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. In other words, quit talking to God. We don't want you to talk to God because when you do, he tells you what to say to us to correct us. We don't want to hear any more of it. So just quit talking to us. That's basically what happens today when we, we tell people, oh, would you like to go to church? You know, I'm like, oh, that offends me. Don't try to convert me. Don't talk about Jesus. You know, our, our country is going to pot so quickly. I hope you all realize that. I hope you realize how, how desperate things are. But we have people that basically say, I don't want you talking about God. I don't want you hearing visions. Don't tell me about Jesus. Just let me do whatever I want. Because the visions cause conviction in the heart of people who are going astray. Godly counsel causes conviction and disrest, unrest, in the heart of people who don't want to follow God's instructions. Who don't want to live for his glory. And basically, I pray this, Lord, don't let them sleep at night. Don't ever let them sleep. Keep them awake every night, all night long, until they come to the consensus that you are the one keeping them awake, and the reason you're keeping them awake is because you care too much about them than to just let them throw their lives away. 
Once you come to that place and you repent of your sin, I promise you, God will give you rest. But while you're in chaos and turmoil, I pray that it gets worse to the point that you can't take it anymore and you'll return to the God who loves you. I'm getting out of breath, but let's skip down to verse 12 here. Therefore, this is what the Holy One, this is what God of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message and you've relied upon the oppression of your enemies and you have depended upon deceitfulness, this sin will become for you like a high wall cracked and bulging that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery shattered so mercifully, mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. So in other words, he's basically saying that when you start this process of building upon your lies and your deceitfulness, and you just keep adding bricks to the, to the construction or to the building, that it's going to get very big and it's going to get very massive, but under the weight of all of the deceitfulness and brokenness and, and lies that you've built into it, the walls are going to slowly start bulging out until the whole building collapses. This is what's going to happen in your life if you continue to build a life contrary to the way God has in, instructed us to build. He's not going to let it stand because you're living a life that's in opposition to his goodness. And if he didn't love you, he would say, just do whatever you want. But the fact that he loves you means that he stands by and he watches and he waits for the building to crumble. And then he comes alongside of you and says, now, will you let me help you? In verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. This is hard. Quietness, rest, repentance, all of this is hard. My good friend Larry uh, was the founder of an incredible mission in Haiti. Uh, He was uh, founded in the early 70s. And uh, built it up to where it's like one of the highest uh, employment structures in all of Haiti. And uh, a a salvation to a lot of people. Uh, And several years ago, he was joking around with some people. And uh, he offended a woman who was uh, connected to people on his board of directors. Said something uh, that he shouldn't have said. And and he would admit it. But... um, we would think, we would look at it and say, are you kidding me? They destroyed his life for that. But anyway, he was asked to resign from the board of his own mission that he had started and he was passionately in love with. And so he, he walked away from that with a broken heart. And, and he came and spoke at a conference that we did and, um, because he started a new mission after that. He gave that one to his children and started a new one. And he said that for, for at least a week that he got up in the morning very early and he prayed, God, what do you want me to do? Because he felt like he had to fix, he had to do something in order to get back on track, right? We do that. We like to fix our own problems because we're fixer people. And so you make a mistake or somebody you love makes a mistake, you get in there and you try to help them to rebuild it, right? That's what we do. But that's not God's way. 
That's not God's way. That's what he's trying to teach us here. And so what Larry did was God told him, just go and sit on your porch swing and don't move until I tell you to. And so for a whole week, he sat on his porch swing and he rocked and he cried and he rocked and he cried and he prayed and he prayed and he rocked and he cried for a week. And then until finally God said, this is what I want you to do. There's a verse that says, be still and know that I'm God. What is it? That sounds about right. That's what it's all about. That's what this whole message is about. You see, we live in a world where the world is very intelligent by its own standard. And the world has a way of doing things and a way of fixing problems. The Bible is also contrary to this. The Bible has its own wisdom and elements of trust and fear and and reconciliation. And the Bible says, do it this way. The world says, do it this way. And because we've been raised up in both environments, we have a little schizophrenia in our heads. And when something happens, we think like the world does and says, oh, well, I've got to fix it. And then sometimes we'll hear a Bible verse. They'll say, no, be still and know that I'm God. And so we'll have this conflict in our heads. And we're like, well, I don't know what to do now. Well, whose fault is that? It's not God's fault. It's that we've been raised among wheat and we have both distractions in our heads. But we have to learn to shut out the world, to retrain our minds. That's why the scriptures say you have to be renewed in your minds by dying to the old self, dying to the world and living in Christ with the scriptures being our source of of influence, our source of of wisdom and, and education and intellect. And so we use the scriptures and we fix our problems God's way instead of the world's ways. But this is so contrary to us. And so he says, in repentance and rest, you will find your salvation. Repentance is fundamental for God to do anything redemptive in our lives. It has to start with with repentance. Uh, when John the Baptist came onto the scene, he preached a message that was conflicting with what the world had heard. He gave a baptism of repentance that those who would repent of their sins, who would renew their minds, transform their minds, change the way they thought about God and about themselves, about the world, they could be baptized into water. They could find salvation, but they had to change the way they were thinking before God could do his best work of redemption in them. In quietness and trust, they will find strength in him. But he says in 16, but you said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, flee. Just go. If that's what you want, just go. And it says, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. Just go. May your blessings be, may, may my blessings be upon you. Go. They said a thousand will flee at the threat of one and the threat of five. You will all flee away till you are all left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. God's saying, if you want to do it so bad, just do it. Just go. You don't want my help, then go. You don't have it. You don't want my blessing, then go without it. You just, you just want to, to make your own nest, you do it. 
I'm not going to force my agenda on you. I'm not going to force my love on you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to, to bless your life and to make it better than it's ever been and better than you could ever accomplish on your own. But if you are so stubborn to think you can do it without me, then go do it without me. That's like the, the worst type of judgment and discipline God could ever bestow upon anybody. Just go and do it. Get out of my house. Do your own thing. If you're that stubborn, just go and do it. But don't you come crying back to me if your heart's broken, right? No, that's not what he said. That's not what he said. In verse 18, he says this. Or in, yeah, in verse 18, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. In other words, you go do your own thing. But know this, when you hit bottom, I'm still going to be God. And I'm still going to be gracious. I'm still going to be here ready to help you pick up the pieces. Bless you. Now that is the type of graciousness that our God has that we struggle to duplicate. Because we want more judgment, right? We want to kick them in the tail end. We want to, we want to just watch them and laugh, you know, when they fall on their faces. But that's not God's way. It's crazy that we're such an obstinate people. We're so stubborn. And so God wants me to convey to you that, yes, this is going to be a great year, a blessing for a lot of people. But for those who are going to continue to live life stubbornly for your own gain, your own selfishness, for your own purposes, you're going to have a miserable year. But at the end of your your rebellion, I'm still God. I'm still here to help you. I'm still here to rebuild you. But don't ever think I'm going to force my agenda on you. He wants us to choose him. This is where a lot of people go, go wrong in their theology. God wants to love us. He wants a relationship with us. To have a loving relationship, he cannot force his agenda on us. He has to give us an option, and then he waits for us to choose him. And when we choose him, he'll, he'll just wrap his loving arms around you and hold on for eternity. But he waits for you to choose him. But we act like, well, God hasn't chosen me. He's chosen everybody, but everybody rejects him. Well, God can't do nothing with me because you won't let him do anything with you. Well, my sin's too bad. God can't fix me. He can't, he can't repair me. He can't redeem me. Then you don't know my God. He can redeem anybody. He wants to love you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. This is not about rules and regulations. I was telling a friend the other night, I said uh, that when I was uh, a young alcoholic and God had called me to be a preacher, uh, when I was in the army, I, uh, I started thinking to myself, okay, what church could I be the pastor in where I could still drink? So I thought, Catholic church. I need to be a Catholic priest. But then it quickly, I quickly was reminded, Catholic priests can't get married. Mm, not good. I can be Lutheran. I can be a Lutheran pastor and I can still drink and I can still get married. And I thought, oh, but their services are just, not to be offensive, they're kind of boring. You know, and I'm like, I don't know if I want to be Lutheran. And I said, God, what am I going to do? And God says, why don't you just, <laughs> I can't really tell you what God told me to do. 
um, at least in my, my language. But um, God said, I want you to choose one that you're going to love. Choose one that you're going to love and one that's going to love you. And then love me to the fullest so that through you I can love those people. It's not about rules and regulations. You don't choose a God based on what he will and, let, and won't let you do. You choose a God who has the ability to redeem you in the midst of your most broken state and you love him for it. It's a God who you can call on any day or time to have a personal fellowship with you, to help you to see things clearly when you can't see it because of all the smoke around your face. You need a God like that that you can love and know is going to love you back regardless of how stubborn you are or how obstinate you are. You need to pick a God who has the ability, the love, the compassion, the, the, uh, the capacity to provide for you. Excuse me, the capacity to provide for you. And the greatest provision is that he sent his only son to die on a cross for you that you may have eternal life. Of all of the world religions, our God is the only one who made a sacrifice for the sake of his people. And then he waits for us to choose him. And that's what this whole chapter is about. God's like, you know, I'm not going to make you do the things that I know you need to do. So I'm going to let you fall on your face a hundred thousand times if you have to. But I'm going to let you fall on your face so that when you get in over your head, you'll know that I'm still a gracious God and I have the ability to clean up your mess. So in that light, this is an extremely positive message. We know from experience, a lot of you are going to screw up this year. We know that a lot of people are going to drop out of church because it's not as exciting to them as Bears games or, or fishing tournaments or golf outings. And so we choose to just let you go because we can't make you be here. We can't make you stay. But if you choose to stay, we will love you like your family. We will help you through thick and thin. We will provide for you. We will love you. We'll pray for you. We'll encourage you. We'll do whatever you need, but we are not going to make you stay here. Luckily, I would say most of you want to be here. And that's why it's easy to call you brother or call you sister. That's why it's easy to love you. Because in spite of our sinfulness, you chose to fellowship with us anyway. In spite of my mistakes, my brokenness, my foolishness, you chose to let me be your pastor. That's pretty crazy stuff. And because of that, I choose you to be my family. Because together, we're all just a bunch of messed up people, but we're headed the right direction. And we have a God who loves us and has the ability to do amazing things in us. And that's why I do what I do. And that's why I think you do what you do. I have one quick story I was going to tell you before we started. Uh, this really is kind of, it's a setup story, not an end of the sermon story. But um, it's important to tell you anyway. This, these past week, week or so, because of Christmas, Christmas Eve anniversary, birthday, all this stuff has been so crazy. Um, I, I took the time a, a few days ago to clean the refrigerator. Uh, I rolled out the refrigerator while you were gone, and I cleaned up underneath it and behind it, you know, because you got to do that. I sold appliances. I know how dangerous it is not to clean your refrigerator, right? 
And so anyway, I was taught that the best way to clean off the gunk on the back is to use gasoline. So I, I put it in a little, like a dish, you know, uh, like we have lots of little dishes. I put it in a dish. And so uh, I'm, I'm cleaning back there. And the crazy thing is, is Abigail's cat, Tiberius, came and uh, was sniffing it. And I think it was licking it. But it was the craziest thing because a few minutes later, her cat just went ballistic. I mean, it started running through the house, jumping and doing backflips. It was like trying to crawl, crawl, uh, crawl up the drain. It was just going nuts. All of a sudden, it was in front of us. Okay. So anyway, the cat was just going like, for like three hours. It went. So I called the vet and I said, you got to help me because I don't know what to do. My cat is going nuts. And he says, don't worry. Eventually, it's going to run out of gas. Um, yeah. So there was your joke about gasoline, Andrew. Uh, but anyway. Um, <laughs> the point of it is, is that um, in your busyness. It is possible to be so busy that you lose focus of, of what uh, you're really supposed to be focused upon. And when you're so busy that you lose sight of Jesus, you're really getting yourself into trouble. The, the, the thing is, and you know, you hear this all the time, but it is such a true statement and it's such a true indictment on this world. When you lose sight of Jesus, you lose sight of everything that's good. Jesus is what separates our, our faith from every other religion in the world. They don't have Jesus who died on the cross for them for their sins. So if you lose sight of Jesus, you're going to be miserable. Your prayers are going to be lifeless. Your relationships are going to be dead. Your, your faith in church is going to be dead. It's just going to be a bunch of rules and, and traditions. And that's not what God intended. He wants to have relationship with you. Jesus provides the relationship. And so I just want to encourage you to focus on him this year. Let him be your salvation, nothing else. And I'm, I'm sure you'll have an amazing year. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I'm sorry we don't always display that for you. I'm sorry that a lot of times our words are cheap and we don't have the, the sustenance to back it up when we say that we love you. But I pray today for everyone here and every family represented that your grace will fall upon us, that you will forgive us. But in order for you to forgive us, we know that we need to be repentant. We need to share with you the things that we've done that violate you and your ways. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have been selfish in some of the things we've done. We have failed to fulfill the responsibilities that you put upon us. We have failed to maintain healthy relationships with those who you've entrusted to us. We have made a lot of mistakes. We have uh, created a lot of sin in our life. We have been carrying around a lot of baggage because we don't trust you with the baggage. And, and Lord, we repent that we've been trying to fix everything by our own strength. And we have not humbled ourselves in your presence. We haven't given you the things that you've asked us to give you so that you can redeem our hearts, you can redeem our families, and you can change our lives. But today, Lord, as we kick off a new year, help us to set things straight. Help us to get right with you. Help us to lay all of those things at your feet, all of those idols, all of those concerns, all of that sin. Help us to lay it at your feet 
and confess it with you that we need Jesus to be prominent in our lives in the year to come so that we can produce a, a result that would be pleasing to you, that would be a blessing to you. Father, forgive us of our sins. Replenish us. In Jesus' holy and righteous name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing.